I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanira, and this is the podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. When I was about 13, a friend of mine whose father had gone to England on a business trip came back with a gift that made this kid the most popular kid in my world. It was a handheld dual-screen Donkey Kong console. At the time in Zimbabwe, all we had were very rudimentary handheld games like Pong, Space Invaders, and Breakout. Even then, only the rich kids had these games. You had to go to the one and only video game arcade in my city to even see, yet alone play, the more advanced games like Tetris, Pac-Man, and Galaxian. Unfortunately, my father had forbidden me from setting foot into that arcade. It was akin to going into a bar, in his opinion. And for my dad, video games would corrupt my mind and lead to a life of drugs and crime. So I was resigned to playing my friend's Donkey Kong console, which I got extremely good at, but only at his house, mind you, as I wouldn't dare bring that thing home either. To this day, I still have a slightly guilty feeling when I hop onto a game on my phone or hit the PS button on my PlayStation. It's funny how events from 30 years ago can embed themselves into one's psyche. What is up with that? My guest today has no such reservations about gaming. Marguerite Dibble is the president and CEO of Game Theory, a company that creates games and provides consulting and insights from the world of gaming Marguerite founded the company as a junior at Champlain College right here in Burlington, Vermont, and now has a growing team of designers, developers, and problem solvers building game-powered solutions for a brighter future. Marguerite believes that if you are going to tackle big, complex problems and ideas, why not make it fun? Marguerite, welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. That was an awesome intro. <laughs> yeah, I still have some nightmares about uh, playing video games, which is kind of sad. <laughs> <laughs> so I first met you about a year ago at a speaker series hosted by the Vermont Center for Emerging Technologies and was literally captivated by your story and what you were doing in the startup world. So I've been very much looking forward to having you as a guest on my podcast. So thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Really happy to be here. So uh, we'll start off uh, with your life as a child. Uh, what social groups did you belong to in high school? And how did that impact or inform your decisions and choices as an adult? Yeah, so I, uh, I was actually a theater kid. I did a lot of theater growing up. And my family um, has a bit of a theater background. My dad did a lot of theater work before he became a painting contractor in Southern Vermont. and we had a lot of Shakespeare in my family. So that was always really, really important to me. And I did a lot of theater when I was in high school, which, you know, theater is is really good for people who want to do things that are entrepreneurial in the future, because it really helps you learn to be confident and how to put yourself out there. So I hung out with a lot of the theater kids. And then I also hung out with a lot of, um, you know, a lot of nerds, a lot of video game kids, a lot of tech kids. I had a technology class in high school. That really was the best class I think I've ever taken. It was just called tech research. And you just got to sit in the lab, pick something that you wanted to look into technology-wise using the computer. And you just got to explore that for the whole semester. And you had to do little public speaking exercises throughout the semester to talk about what you learned. And you had to document your learning and then present it at the end. And that was just so awesome for me because it was totally, you know, self-directed and really helped you really helps you see that you can set your own goals and you can meet your own challenges. And that was really key for me in terms of 
knowing what I could do. But yeah, I hung out with a lot of nerds. We played a lot of video games. Um, similar to you, I wasn't really allowed to have video games when I was little because my parents were worried that I would do nothing but play video games, which is probably true. I probably would have just played video games. <laughs> but my, co- my, uh, my, cousins, um, my cousins always had the best new cool stuff and we didn't have it. And then they were going to throw away this very old, video game station when I was little and I convinced them to give it to me instead of throwing it away and so I would play that at my house for years and I actually didn't pay for a video game station um, until I was 24 I would just take ones that other people were throwing away that they didn't want anymore and I would and I would use those that's a lot of that (laughs) what project did you do uh, for for school so I did um, I did photoshop I learned how to use Photoshop to do graphic design work. And it was really cool because I got to teach myself how to use Photoshop. I'd started learning how to use it um, a couple of years before, and this was a chance to get good at it. And what it let me do is it let me do freelance graphic design work in high school and throughout college. And it really showed me how awesome it was to sort of make your own money your own way, right? To be able to say, oh, I have a skill and I'm going to apply it and I'm going to do something with it, and then I'm going to be able to just make money doing that instead of um, going out and having to get part-time jobs, which I did too. But being able to do freelance design work using a skill that you built for yourself was really inspiring for me in terms of wanting to wanting to have a company and wanting to keep that feeling of self-directedness. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So you were making money while, while everybody else is probably busy messing around in high school. Uh, which is awesome. So yeah. you grew up in Landgrove, Vermont, uh, which is in southern mm-hmm. Vermont, and a very small town of about 200 people, I guess. Uh, so mm-hmm. what else did you do for fun growing up? Oh, man. Well, video games help. <laughs> for sure. And then you have to <laughs> when you are allowed you to, to right? your imagination. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When uh, I got I was allowed to once I got a little bit older when I was in like seventh and eighth grade, then my parents were like, okay, well, you sort of, you know, you can set your own goals and you can do your own stuff now. They didn't think I was so young and susceptible at that point. So, you know, playing video games, but you also, you have to have a lot of imagination when you grow up in the country. And I was sort of, it's funny, I did games in sort of different ways. I would make these big events that I would do. Like I custom wrote a murder mystery party script for my friends and I. And people apparently do this now. I didn't know this was a thing, but I came up with a whole a whole plot line and I assigned characters to all my theater friends and there were motives and there were backstories and everyone had a goal they had to accomplish during the course of the night. And I like threw a, threw a party where we were all going to do that. And I also arranged for a, a big human versus zombies um, sort of hide and go seek capture the flag <laughs> game that took place in the town once it was all dark and everyone had gone to bed, which in Vermont is like, you know, seven o'clock at night. So it's really <laughs> But yeah, you have to be creative, and that's oh, cool. um, that's a cool experience. Yeah, so uh, I guess um, growing up in in the small towns um, is quite interesting. But then you then you know decided to stay in a small state uh, and stay right here in Vermont and go to college here. And after graduating, you chose to stay in Vermont. Uh, why? I mean, I just really like Vermont. It's a really beautiful place to be, and I really like seasons. I really like them in Vermont. Every single month feels totally different, right? Like you can you can pretty much like if I was whisked away and then just dropped onto a random day of the year in Vermont, I could look around and probably be like, oh, this is April or like this is November and know the difference. And I really like that. I really like living in Vermont because I feel like I feel like you really are in touch with a sort of deeper truth in terms of nature and it's sort of this constant presence of that deeper truth that has existed for a very long time and will continue to exist long after we're all gone and feeling like that's a daily part of my life is really grounding for me in a way that I really really value and for me you know I was really excited to start a company I love having my company and growing my team but I just want to be able to have a life that feels contented and feels solid and feels valuable and for me being in Vermont is a is a really strong part of that goal and so being here every day helps me feel like I'm achieving that and that's pretty fortunate. Amen to that. Uh, 
So I'm not going to give away your, your age here because I was told never to ask a lady her age, but um, in your junior year in <laughs> I don't college, care. <laughs> in your junior year in college, and, and that was in 2011, uh, so not that mm-hmm. long ago, you founded Burnham Wood Games. Uh, what was the idea mm-hmm. behind this business? Yeah, so when I, I always knew when I was in school that I was going to start a company, and then I was at school for video games. So I figured, oh, I'll just start a video game company. And I named the company Burnham Wood Games after a Macbeth play, which is a Shakespeare play. And in the Shakespeare play, the witches tell Macbeth uh, that he will be the king until Burnham Wood marches on his castle. And he, of course, says, a forest is never going to march against my castle. It's impossible. So I'm going to be king forever. And then one day he's up on the castle walls and he looks out and he sees the trees marching towards the castle but of course it's not actually the trees it is the english king soldiers disguised as trees making their way to dethrone him and i always just loved that story and i also got to do an extended metaphor thing it was like oh this represents gaming right games are not thought of as art but they are actually this great artistic force that is marching unseen into our media landscape so (laughs) it got to be a fun extended metaphor and um the goal was just to make cool video games. And we did that for a number of years. And then I realized that that business model was a little bit not exactly what I wanted. So we renamed the company and changed directions a little bit eventually. What was the driving force behind you choosing to do gaming uh, for, for college? Well, it was really that I got to do 10 things at once with games. Whereas if I did something else, I had to choose one because video games, there's so many things at once. If you do video games, you're doing storytelling, you're doing art, you're doing things you do in film, you're doing computers and graphics. So you get to do pretty much all of the things that I was really excited about and really wanted to do. Something that really, um, that I love about video games is that it feels like it combines like the sort of two halves of your brain really well. You have to design things in a really logical, systems-driven way, which I really like. But none of that matters if you don't also approach it with a great amount of creativity and artistry. And that was always really important to me too. So I really liked that it was both of those things. And then really, my friends were there, right? The people who I liked spending time with, the people who liked the same sort of things I did, they were they were in that space too. So it felt like felt like hmm. a good place to be able to spend time. That's awesome. I I actually read Macbeth uh, in high school, but sadly I have no yeah. recollection of Burnham Wood, but I do remember the English marching on Macbeth's castle. Though. <laughs> so yeah. that was a good sort of memory jogger. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so what was the business idea behind Burnham Wood? So the business idea was sort of the business model that all video game companies, the, the majority of entertainment video game companies aim for. And that's that you make a game, you put it in the marketplace, people buy that game, and then you use the sales from that first game to fund your salaries while you make the second game. And you continue to do that over and over and over again. That's the model that everyone sort of aims for. So any like a, Angry Birds, Clash of Clans, World of Warcraft, they all work off that idea. The game that we made makes money and that gives us money that we can use to make the next thing. So that is sort of the the typical business model. But that business model, sort of like movies, um, is very unpredictable, right? You have no idea how much money the game that you create is going to make. And therefore, you don't know how much money you're going to end up with to fund that second game. But that is sort of the goal of many video game developers is to strike that sweet spot and make that business model work for them, which um, which is very hard. Interesting. So kind of like the movie industry where you produce a movie and people go watch it and you make money like that. That's right. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly the same. The yeah. difference is that <laughs> the movie industry has a lot of producers, right? And video games don't really have that as much. There's things called publishers, which sort of work like books, where you can get them to give you some money to make the game. They're the person who's responsible for marketing and selling it. And then when you finish the game, they basically split all the profits that are made with you, which for people who are small teams that don't have a lot of resources in order to publicize and market their products, it's 
existential. You pretty much can't go it alone. So that becomes what a lot of people do, including what we did for the game that we had that was um, that was very popular. So were there particular recipes that you guys were following? I know like the success of Angry Birds, for instance, or Clash of Clans. Um, is that the sort of thing that you guys were trying to replicate? Uh, to a certain extent, I mean, everyone's trying to find something that people want to play uh, for a while. It's just, you know, if you're not familiar with the industry, you get sort of taken by surprise about how challenging it can be. We made a game that was based on sort of strategy board games, and it was rated, you know, number one in the app store for a couple of weeks, which was a huge oh, no accomplishment, and we were very excited. That's oh, yeah, awesome. it was great. Um but <laughs> so it was but. I remember the day we published we published our game. It was like, you know, uh it was in the app store, it was like in the top fifty games of the app store. It was the number one board game in like fifty wow. countries. It was like we had The Verge and Kotaku and all of our favorite gaming reporting websites were talking about it and they really liked it. So it was this phenomenal day. We were like, Oh my god, it's all come true, right? Everything we could have possibly wanted to happen with this happened in terms of marketing, in terms of recognition. And then at the end of the day, that resulted in about $30,000 of sales, which when you have a team of four people is not enough, especially because you have to split the money with Apple because they're the person who sold it. And then you have to split it with the publisher, who is the person who got you all of that marketing attention to begin with. So it becomes a very tricky business model. It's even tricky for those very popular games. Games like Clash of Clans, they um, ninety <laughs> percent of the money that that game makes comes from point two percent of their audience. Point two percent of the people who play that game make up ninety percent of its revenue. How is the that? Only people who spend money on it. How 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 is it that they're making that much from two percent? Because it's called whales. So the game the games that make big money um, on the app store. They use a strategy where they find a group of people who are willing to spend quite a bit of money on that game. For example, the person who is number one in in Clash of Clans, he spends $70,000 a year on on Clash of Clans to maintain that number one rating. (laughs) Okay, so what is he buying? Like, swag or what exactly? Yeah, yeah, it's tools. To make the game play faster. So, for example, a lot of games will put sort of time walls up. So you'll build something in the game and it will say, come back in a day and it will be completed. It's under construction now. So you can pay to speed that up. You can also pay to soup up the tools that you have. And then you can also pay just to make the game look prettier. So there's a ton of things that these games let you pay for. And, um, it's really, really tricky because those are the games that make lots of money on the app store. They do make lots of money. They make something like $10 million a day. But of that $10 million a day that they make, 90% of that goes back into user acquisition. They pay people 90% of their profits just to download and play the game because the only way that they can continue to make profit margins is by getting more and more and more people to play because only 0.2% of those people will make them money. So it's this constant burn. And that is sort of what the model turns into for those people. There are plenty of people who make video games who don't follow that model. There are plenty of people who say, I made a video game. I'm proud of it. I'm putting it up on Steam, which is a gaming sort of iTunes store. It's going to be 10 bucks. Download it and play it if you like. And that model has continued to be pretty solid for people but it comes with that same trick where it's very hard to know if something will be popular. It's totally impossible. Even the guy who makes Clash of Clans has said, I don't know if a game is going to be successful. If anyone tells you a game is going to be successful and that they know that, they're lying because I don't know. So it is a very unpredictable space, which can be, um, which can be challenging. Wow, I've just had an education right there. This is uh, insane. I had no idea that that's how it was. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. It's very interesting to see what will happen. It, some people think that it's going to sort of hit a bubble point, right? Because that sort of market dynamic is very is very hard. It's tricky because yeah, it's like, when, you, when you yeah, when you get Clash of Clans on your phone and you know that the way that they make money is those in-app purchases and you don't buy any of those in-app purchases, but some people spend lots and lots of money, that's become the business model that's the most viable for those big games on your phone. 
and replace the business model that is instead, hey, pay $5 for this game and you'll get the full game and you won't be able to pay for any bonuses or add-ons, but it will be the game that we intended, five bucks, 10 bucks, and you can have it and you can enjoy it. That business model has struggled in the face of this. And that's just so funny for me because it's like many of the games that you could pay for on your phone are like $2. And so people won't. People do not want to pay for games on their phones. You see this all the time. They just don't want to do it. And then you say, you know, it's like the same price as like a candy bar, right? Like yeah. you could buy a candy bar or you could pay $2 to get a game on your phone that people put hundreds and hundreds of hours into making that you could get hundreds and hundreds of hours of enjoyment out of, but not not necessarily worth five or ten dollars it's very interesting wow so i i'm guessing i know how the story ends you guys kind of face the harsh reality of you know you either come up with the next clash of clans or you pivot and do something else so yep i'm assuming that's what happened and you, that is what happened you did, and you rebranded from burnham wood to game theory can you talk me through sort of how that came about yeah, totally. So it was really it was really in the light of that moment, right? We had that moment where everything we could have possibly asked to happen for that game that we made happened. It was a best case scenario. And yet still, even in a best case scenario, the profits were just not sustainable. They just weren't enough. And so that led to a point where I really had to look at it and I really had to think about what I wanted to do. And for me, when you're doing a business or when you're living your life, it's really just about being honest with yourself about what your what your goals are. What do you want to achieve? And for me, I love making video games, but my main goal was to have a business that I felt like I could grow and that I could thrive with. And for me, having that unpredictable stream of making whatever games I wanted and seeing how they did, that didn't fit that goal for me. Other people don't have that goal. Other people have the goal of just making awesome entertainment video games. And I'm really glad they do because they make really awesome stuff all the time. We share space at VSET with a team that does that and they're so good at it. And I really appreciate that they're doing it. For me, I wanted to grow a business. And for that, the unpredictable nature of that space didn't fit my goals. So what I did was I sort of looked at where we were and I realized that when I went and talked to people about video games who didn't make video games, they would get so excited. <laughs> they would just light up. They'd be like, oh my God, you make video games? That's so cool. <laughs> Tell me about that. That must be so wild. <laughs> and they would just get so excited. And, you know, that, that really counts for something. There's this sort of brand development theory called the Blue Ocean Red Sea, right? And the Red Sea is that sort of small market space where a lot of people are trying to do the same thing. And making video games is one of the reddest things that exists. There are tons of people just trying to make the game that you want to play on your phone. It's the exact same goal, and there are tons of people trying to achieve it, which creates this very dense red sea full of sharks fighting each other for the same end goal. And what I realized was that there was actually this really big blue ocean over here, which was making video games, but for literally everyone else, besides the people that everyone is trying to make video games for. Instead of making entertainment games and competing for the same audience with hundreds of other companies, why not take video games to those people who were so excited when they said, oh, you make video games? That sounds so cool. So make games that work for those people's needs, that help with you know, medical stuff, that help with health stuff, that help with education, that help with so many other industries can benefit from what games do so, so well, which is engage people and create meaningful content and just make something that's fun to interact with. And those industries weren't really using games. So I decided that I wanted to go into those industries, have a more contract-driven business model, which was more predictable for me, which was one of the things I wanted. Mm. And so we rebranded the company as Game Theory, and that's been the space that we have sort of been in since that point. I see. So it sounds like you guys are trying to solve these real-world problems. Can you give me an example of one such problem that you have solved through the use of games and actually walk me through from the ideation process all the way through to the final product? Yeah, sure. So we're actually, I'll give you one that we've sort of done 
in um in micro right now because it'll be coming out really soon and a lot of the products that we build most people can't really play because they're made for a particular client for their audience but this one lots of people will be able to play so that's exciting so we are going to release a game soon called um gerrymander and what it is is it's a game that teaches people how gerrymandering works in the u.s and <laughs> the way this came up is we sort of said okay we want to do a political game. We want to do a game that shows what games can do. We wanted to use this game as sort of a marketing tool for ourselves. And so we said, what's going on politically that we care about? Oh, there's a Supreme Court case that's coming up where they'll decide if gerrymandering is constitutional or not. Gerrymandering is a very hard concept to explain with words. <laughs> what it is is basically right. the idea that if you draw voting districts in a certain way, even if a population is 50-50 blue and red, you can draw the lines so that the population is segmented into groups so that all the people who vote the same are grouped together, and that means their votes end up counting for less. So we decided we wanted to do a game about gerrymandering. We figured out how could the mechanics work, what's the way we could do this. We decided to make it a puzzle game where you have to meet these gerrymandering challenges. You're the one who has to draw the lines through the district to swing the vote one way or the other. And through doing that, you learn, oh, whoa, this is how this works. This is how someone can take a district that's 20%, um, you know, Democrats say, and make the Democrats win the vote. That's that's how that can happen. And so mm. we design the game and we build a prototype. So we build an initial version that we can play with and get a feel for it and start critiquing. And then we basically just test and iterate and test and iterate over and over again, adding more features, more art, sound effects, one thing at a time until the game is ready to go. And then in this case, um, normally we would hand it off to a client and start measuring how successful it was. In this case, we will release it online for free we built it in html5 so that reporters or anyone who wanted to could just add it to their websites or to articles and we included a um a call to action because all the stuff that we do has to sort of serve a purpose and this one is to contact your congressman and let their or congresswoman and let them know that you don't agree with this and this is something that you would like to see stopped and so we put a little um, api in there that lets the game uh, reach out to your representatives and let them know that this isn't something that you're cool with. I see. Wow. I would not have thought that redistricting would have been, you know, handled, uh, at least the understanding and education process of it would have been uh, in a game. That's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully it's really fun. There's like a cartoon lizard and it's a randomly generated series of puzzles. So, you know, you can play the game a hundred times and still get new levels because <laughs> we customized it so that it would just procedurally generate new puzzles for the gerrymandering. And um, we hope it's a fun thing and it's hopefully a fun way for people to engage with an issue. And then again, just like when you see it in the game, you get it, you get it very quickly. And it's also something that hopefully people are more excited to share because it's more fun to interact with than, say, an article or something like that. So these games that you guys are putting together, and when you say companies uh, want them specific for their needs, I mean, are we, what are we talking here? Are we talking like climate change? Are we talking um, health? What, what are the sort of things that uh, you're tackling? Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's totally a number of things. I I get really into solving a ton of different types of problems. So we end up solving a lot of different types of things. There's stuff like, you know, making games to encourage high schoolers to get the right amount of sleep and to get the right amount of exercise. We've done stuff like that. We've done a sort of gamified app that uses no written language that helps refugee populations deal with feelings of trauma and anxiety. Um, which was a really cool project. We have done stuff with education companies where we build a game that sort of makes science fun. So that idea of being a good scientist and asking critical questions, we put those things into a game that can then go into the classroom and work with kids. And then we build games for big companies like Deloitte, where they say, we really want to motivate our workforce to self-educate, to expand their skill sets, 
to look into new things. And so we build games that enable them to do things along those lines. Wow. So is gamification of everything now a thing? <laughs> That's a really good question. <laughs> gamification has sort of become like a little bit of a dirty word in the game scene. And that's because so many marketing and advertising people were like, we're going to gamify everything. Like we're going to put badges on everything. You know what I mean? Like points and badges and all of it everywhere. And the tricky part is that if you want to do a good job using games to make something better, you really just have to think about, why you're using games and who you're using them for and just give it some thought. It's not as easy as just putting badges on something and thinking that's going to make people have more fun with it. You have to really think about it like a game designer. You have to say, what's motivating about this? And that's where we usually start. We normally start, we don't say, how can we trick people into finding this boring thing fun? We say, what makes this thing fun to begin with? Because most of the time it's very intrinsic. Like, We love learning new things as people. We love accomplishing our goals. That's what makes games fun is just that basic psychology that we all share. What games do is just let you bring that to the surface. So we identify not what you're going to try and hide with games, but what you're going to try and bring out with fresh life using games. And what particular type of game do you want to make for your audience and your goals? There are tons of different types of games and different types of people like to play games for different reasons. So you just mm. sort of have to think about things like a game designer would, and you really have to be empathetic, I think, is the most important part of game designing. But if you want something to educate better, to motivate better, there's tons of ways to use that empathetic perspective of game design and that perspective of making something that's engaging and enjoyable rather than demanding and not so fun to accomplish your goal. That's funny because I uh, was on a website the other day that I hadn't been on yeah. for a long time and I logged in and it said like, you are now, I don't know, it said something like you're now King Lizard, you know, send three more emails <laughs> to invite your friend and, you know, your your status will be elevated to something else. I don't remember what that extra level was. And I was like, yeah. what the hell? I've got no idea what yeah. a king lizard is or how I became a king lizard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, they've actually found that, like, gamification is very risky because if you don't approach it like a game designer, there's sort of this, this curve where you will feel more engaged, you'll feel more engaged. And then there'll be this sort of cliff where you will feel manipulated, where you will be like, what are you talking about badges? Absolutely. Like, what are you trying to yeah. try to play me? You're trying to make me think you're cool by putting badges on this? You know what I mean? And so you need, to, you need to not fall into that pit. You need to not be just putting things in there for the sake of putting them in there. You really have to be genuinely thinking about what's going to make this a better experience? What's going to make this something that's really enjoyable for this group of people? And that can be, that can be a tricky, a tricky thing, but that's part of why I like doing it because we're coming at it from that game design perspective first, rather than a marketing perspective first. And I think that helps us make stuff that's more effective. Right. So I'm curious, how do you then tie the creativity piece with the scientific piece and then wrap a layer of the business piece around that. Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. So, I mean, you sort of have to start with a little bit of all three at once, right? Like you can't really ask someone to invest in building something like this unless there is a solid business case for it, right? So at the beginning, you need to be thinking about what type of thing could we make to solve this problem? And is it something that could be supported by a strong value proposition, right? Is it something that people would feel solve the problem in their lives in a way that adds value and meaning? So you sort of have to be thinking about those two things from the beginning. And then the creativity is just, that's the fun part where you get to say, okay, we have the business case, we have the concept, we have the sort of logical backend, and now we just sort of get to hit the gas on the creativity. And that's sort of, what comes into play on the day-to-day for us is balancing the systems that work and then putting the art in it and adding the animations and seeing how it all comes together and balancing those two things 
is sort of the day-to-day work that we do when we when we make a game, which is what makes it so fun. Nice. So I want to just pivot a little bit and talk about yeah. the business itself and entrepreneurship. Uh, you started this business in college. Um, did you mm-hmm. have to save a ton of money or borrow to get the business started? Uh, no, we bootstrapped it. And what I did is I just sat down with the team and I said, okay, realistically, how much money does everybody need to keep going? And we sort of set a minimum level in terms of how much money we needed to bring in each month so that everyone could keep paying rent and feeding themselves. And then I found a couple of contracts for doing game development type work that would let us meet those goals while we, while we built out those first um those first entertainment game products and that's kind of been how the business has run it's not the minimum anymore but i just know <laughs> I hope this not. Is how much money we need to yeah yeah definitely not but i just know okay this is how much money we need to make each month this is how much money we need to make each year and you just go out and you get the contracts and you use the extra time that you have space for to do the stuff that you know we have a couple of free time projects that we'll sit in that are just things for fun for all of us to do. And that sort of continues to be how it goes. You just have to slowly build it up over time, get some initial projects that prove that you can do a good job and then use those to sort of snowball and continue to get work and continue to build and grow. And we'll see how it, how it keeps going. Cool. So how many of you were there and how did you sort of get that initial idea started? Was it brewing in your head for a couple of, well, you were a junior, so maybe a couple of months? And how did you well, convince yeah, I mean, the I rest? Always, <laughs> yeah, I always knew I was going to start a business. Always. Right. It was just a matter of what exactly it was going to be. And I figured, hey, I'm making games already. And this, in 2011, 2010, it was really when small game studios became a thing, like a lot of people were starting to do it. And so I just went up to, um, to two classmates who I know did a good job. And I said, hey, look, I think I'm going to start a company. Uh, I'm going to start making some games. Do you, want, do you want it? Do you want to be a part of it? And they were like, sure. <laughs> so I got sort of two people signed on initially. And then we realized we needed a little bit more a little bit more power, a little bit more time. And so we added a fourth and that was the initial company when we, when we graduated and we continued to sort of, you know, do our, do our stuff and make it work. And then when we pivoted the company to game theory, we were able to grow more. And now we have, now we have a bigger team. Jeez, that's, that's, that's really inspiring. And Pada loved the fact that you, it didn't sound like you were a uh, accidental entrepreneur. Uh, what do you think drove that? No. Um, well, I mean, growing up, my dad ran a business. He's a painting contractor, so he runs a house painting business down here. And so I got to see that growing up. I got to see how it feels when you sort of are responsible for your own livelihood and you can set your schedule. And oftentimes it's a lot of hard work, but you get that sense of satisfaction and ownership. So seeing that was really inspiring and then I always just like to do stuff on my own like when I was in like fourth grade I wrote and directed and starred in like a play that I put on for the whole school and I always used to like make my own games and make my own movies and my own comic books and I just really liked doing stuff my own way and taking a shot at it but it is definitely definitely a lot to do with my parents my parents have always been so supportive and so amazing. And they just encouraged me to try stuff all the time and not be afraid of failing, not being afraid of making a mistake. Like just go for it and see what happens. And so they really raised me to be pretty fearless that way. And I think that that really helped. And I I always knew they would be there. I always knew that they would have my back if something didn't go quite right and that they would support me and give me the encouragement and the critique and all of that that I needed to to keep going so that's a that's a huge factor that's great i mean as a as a parent myself and a father of a young girl i yeah. really take great inspiration from that knowing that you know as a parent you can support your child in such a way that you know when they look back it's because of those 
nudges and sometimes the arm around the shoulder type thing that help to shape who they are. So really, really cool stuff. Um, so when you were in college and you were presumably struggling through assignments and the usual yes yeah. <laughs> that everybody has to go through um you were also struggling with how to build the next clash of clans for like yeah. Yeah. another example you know like how was that for you and how did you sort of kind of get through school but also at the same time manage the the responsibilities of actually starting a, a, a company from the ground up yeah, well, luckily, um, one of the reasons I picked Champlain College was because I knew they would be very supportive of that. I came to the school partly on an entrepreneurial scholarship because the biz, the, um, the college makes it their purpose to say, we want entrepreneurial students and they have a special program to support them as they attend ways to work sort of your curriculum into your business goals. Mm, so yeah. the fact that that was a clear mission of the school did help because everyone knew that that was valuable and important. Um, but yeah, you really do have to also keep up with your classes and all that sort of stuff. And for me, I've just always been a, I like managing my time very well. I like planning ahead. And I like working efficiently and quickly without distraction in a set period of time. So I never, ever hold any all-nighters. I like my weekends to be my weekends. I would never let that stuff burn me out. I would just set goals. Like I like to sit down with a calendar and plan exactly how I'm going to spend each hour every week. And I know giving myself room to breathe that that hour is going to be, when I do that, it's going to be focused time. Like if you plan ahead and you manage your time effectively, I think that people are capable of a lot more than <laughs> they might assume. You just got to be focused <laughs> and not distracted. I'm definitely a work smart, not hard type person. I love that. And a shout out to Champlain College as well. I mean, they're, they are really blazing a unique trail with the entrepreneurial type of uh, classes and curriculum that they're putting together. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I mean, the fact that our video game classes, you major in video game design, art, or, or um, programming. And a lot of schools, you'll just sort of major in video games, but not at Champlain College. And then what you do is people from each of those majors make studio teams that then make games together as part of your college education. And that's exactly what you do in professional life in the video games industry. So when I graduated, even though I had never worked at a video games company, I felt like I had for at least a few years because that's very much how they run their program, which I think is just the best. Hmm. Yeah. And so there's plenty of tech companies out there with female founders, uh, but my assumption is they are a lot of close-minded business leaders out there that you've probably come across. What are some of the challenges and opportunities of being a female founder and also being young? And do you have any specific examples uh, without naming and shaming, of course? <laughs> yeah, so for me, it's never been a particular challenge. People have always been, you know, really excited to see what I was doing and really excited to help and to interact. For me, the biggest thing is just, it's just a really big bummer that there aren't more female entrepreneurs out there. Um, there are not many, and there are not many that are fully supported. I think the amount of funding in um, Silicon Valley that goes to female entrepreneurs is something like, you know, 0.12% or something like that, because there's just wow. not a lot of people in the space. And it's because I was really lucky. I was raised to be someone who was excited to take risks. That can be really, really scary for a lot of women because we are sort of trained by society to aim for perfection, not courage. And that puts you in a really scary position to take risks. Like women will often not apply for a job unless they feel like they can meet 96% of the qualifications. Whereas men will apply for a job if they feel like they meet 50% of the qualifications. Mm -hmm. And that's just because we raise men and women to approach risk differently. And I think that that leads to fewer women wanting to start businesses. And it, um, it sucks because there's so many 
awesome opportunities for women. And also the world would benefit so much from more female entrepreneurship. You can see studies from countries where when they support female entrepreneurship, the economy flourishes. It's just a very clear, clear message that that just helps things grow because I think women design things also with a particular eye towards sustainability socially, and that really helps. But yeah, in terms of my experience, it's been really positive. I've loved being a female entrepreneur. That's it's wonderful. been a great experience. And I just wish that there were that there were more female entrepreneurs because it lets you have control over your life in a way that is extremely satisfying. It lets you build jobs for people that are sustainable and that are socially conscious. And there's a ton, there's a ton of opportunities. So I just hope that more women dive into this space because there's plenty of room for them and the whole world would benefit quite a lot. Wonderful. So what does the future of game theory look like? Yeah. So it's interesting. So Vermont, a lot of people say is a really great place for startups, but not such a good place for scale ups. And we are sort of feeling that burn a little Mm. bit right now at game theory. We're about, you know, 10 people, including a couple of part-time folks. And you notice a lot of companies in Vermont are that size. A lot of companies will sort of hit that size and sort of be like, oh, okay, <laughs> it's a little bit harder to take the next step to sort yeah. of start scaling that company. And so for us, it's sort of figuring out how we can tackle that challenge. Um, part of that is that contract work, while it's good for a lot of reasons, has its own unpredictabilities, right? Sometimes the work won't be there. Sometimes there'll be too much work. It sort of is a little bit uncontrolled on its own. So something we're looking at is, are there a couple of, game-inspired software products that we can really love and that we can really own. So we're looking at possibly adding a few product lines to our business model to help supplement that contract model. And we will, uh, we'll see how that works out. That's something that we're thinking about as we look ahead towards sort of scaling the company to its next stage. Wonderful. Um, I was actually talking to a friend of mine and telling her uh, that I was going to interview you. And she said that I need to ask you or to tell you to start designing the next Hunger Games uh, game. <laughs> for... <laughs> yeah, that would be a good one. That'd be really popular. <laughs> I was like, uh, no, I don't think anybody wants to have to end up in, in a Hunger Games type uh, environment where we're watching them die. <laughs> Maybe digitally, though, right? <laughs> Maybe in VR. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in closing, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? I would just say that there is so much time and you don't need to feel like you need to do everything at once, right? Like when I was little, I was like, oh man, I need to get it all done by the time I'm 25, right? Like you have these these age goals and that you have to be exceptional. And I would just say, you know, slow down. There is so much life and there is so much to live for and you don't need to do it all at once. Take a deep breath. Think about where you really want to be for yourself, not because of where you think you should be or where you think you could be. Think about where you want to be and know that you can get there and that there's plenty of time and just, Think about, think about your life in that perspective. I think that we could all do to take a step back and sort of put things in perspective every once in a while and feel like, feel like we can get there. Great. I think that uh, wisdom would apply to just about anybody, you know, who's got <laughs> yeah. their lives and just thinking, I need to get to a certain destination by a certain age or time. There's so much time. So you, there's so many people who accomplish so many things. Like, Oprah got fired from like her first television network job, you know, when she was in her twenties and she thought it was the end of her career and she didn't pick up steam again for years. And it's like, she's doing fine. Oprah's doing fine. You'll do fine too. Right. (laughs) Just a little dip. That's all. Yeah. Well, uh, Margaret, would you like to share your online media details? So people who want to learn more about your organization and what you do, uh, how, how can they go about doing that? 
Yeah, sure. So you can check out the company at GameTheoryCo.com. That's GameTheoryCo.com. The Game Theory URL was claimed, so GameTheoryCo will do. And then if you want to follow me on social media, my Twitter handle is MLDibs. That's Dibs with two Bs, like my last name. And uh, yeah, you can find me on there complaining about video game advertising <laughs> and talking about my dogs and a whole bunch of good stuff. Yes, I follow you on Twitter and I know you're very active. Uh, well Marguerite it's been a real pleasure having you on my show Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time knowledge and insights I never thought I'd be saying this but I've realized that it is possible to harness the power of gaming to solve real world problems like energy hunger poverty climate change and maybe even war um yeah, it knows? sounds counterintuitive, but after researching your work uh, for this show and also talking to you today, I'm convinced now more than ever uh, that you don't have to be Super Mario or a member of Black Ops or Donkey Kong, my personal hero, uh, to be a hero. Um, you know, games are a powerful platform for change and you just have to think outside the box. So thank you so much for enlightening and inspiring me. And I wish you and your young company all the very best in your future endeavors. And I am very much looking forward to the next five to 10 years to see the kind of future that organizations like Game Theory can imagine. Oh, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I had such a good time. Wonderful. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast, On the Shoulders of Giants. I talk to Liz Robert and discover how she turned around the fortunes of a struggling Vermont teddy bear company. And lo and behold, by the end of that second year, we found ourselves right back in a state of undeclared Chapter 11 as a public company, mind you. Wow. Uh, unable to pay bills, unable to make lease payments, um, as none of those retail stores that we opened came close to hitting their target sales. So it was in the fall of 1997, so two years later, where I confronted uh, our auditors, Arthur Anderson at the time, who told me that as a public company, we were not a going concern. And uh, I had to uh, ultimately uh, work with the board to replace uh, Pat Byrne as CEO, and uh, I had I took the the uh, reins as an interim CEO. Meanwhile, uh, worked with uh, the auditors with a small capital provider by the name of Green Mountain Capital, and with uh, a lot of scrambling and a lot of work directly with the SEC, we were finally able to convince them that we had enough capital and a business plan suitable to. Granted, a clean opinion uh, as a going concern. 